Welcome to the Property Voice Podcast, helping you to navigate safely through the world of property investing. Get the lowdown and updates, insights and outcomes on all matters property with a splash of entertainment along the way. The Property Voice, a voice to trust among the crowd. Now, let's get started with your host, Richard Brown. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Property Voice podcast. My name is Richard Brown and as always it's a pleasure to have you join me again on the show today. Over the past couple of weeks we've heard from a small builder about what they're doing particularly with regard to self-build and sustainable building materials as I chatted with Malcolm and Richard from Greenheart Sustainable Building. Then last time I was joined by Matt Goff from Mace Group who are one of the UK's top contractors and uh, an international construction and consulting company. Matt was clearly aware of and indeed monitoring several technological developments in the construction sector, such as factory built, modular methods, robot bricklayers, and the government drive behind Industry 4.0, as he called it, with uh, uh, productivity at the heart. So I guess we kind of heard from two ends of the scale to some extent. So today, I want to draw together some of the trends, not only as my guests saw them, but also from some of my own research and observation as well. So let's join the dots up a little with the common themes, trends and future developments that I can see right now in construction technology. Okay, so let's get on with this week's featured topic with Property Chatter. Okay, so... I kind of saw four general areas, if you like, emerging as sort of groups over the uh, over the course of conversation and researching in this sector. So I'm just going to walk you through those now. And some of the observations that came out in discussion and that I found myself, and there's quite a lot of overlap uh, from what people are saying as well, which is probably a quite a good indication in all honesty. So the first one uh, I've grouped together is uh, construction and building methods. And uh, there's no doubt about it, but uh, modular and prefab or prefabrication um, is one of the big issues. So 68% of construction firms are investing in modular housing and 56% um, in construction with panels. So that tells you that the, the big players are taking it seriously. And it's something that's it's going to uh, definitely um, evolve over time as uh, these factories are rolled out and these new methods uh, are started to be deployed. And then, of course, we've got the emergence of the custom build trend, which will also help us to move away from the identikit square boxes that we've become used to in, in mass housing projects. People like to be unique, don't they? So uh, with the addition of options and alterations and customization, we can personalize a home, which will no doubt uh, be a driver going forward. There was the discussion around the difference between new build and retrofit or refurbishment, as Richard and Malcolm from Greenheart highlighted. Retrofit or refurbishment can be particularly challenging with regard to materials, site access, design, water and condensation and so on. Um, All of these issues can be problematic. So we're going to see the greatest level of change probably in the new build sector. Um, But of course, the majority of our housing stock is existing. So uh, I'm waiting to see what's going to happen in terms of retrofit. Not seen so much come through yet. And there are definitely some challenges which will hamper that. But I think we'll see the greatest rate of change in new build. That's what I'm trying to say. And we've got the mechanization 
um, trend or the manufacturing of construction. This is we're talking about factory assembly, um, where you know built in a factory in 20 days and erected on site in half a day. Several house builders and uh, are, are setting up factories to develop off-site construction and then ship you know the units ready to build on site or erect on site quite quickly. Barclay Homes, in particular, uh, plan to build a factory in Kent, which is capable of building a thousand homes a year or constructing the materials for a thousand homes per year, which is 25% of its annual output. So um, it might not sound like a lot, a thousand homes, but of course, if all the builders are starting to do this, and I'm sure that people like Barclay will then scale up if, uh, if it goes well, then that's going to be a, a growing trend. And then I came across uh, Hadrian X, or Hadrian, um, probably after Hadrian's Wall, I should imagine, the robot Bricky, and uh, 3D printing, which enables on-site on rather construction to take place. So we've got factory construction of materials and units on the one hand, but we've also got 3D on-site construction taking place as well. So there's two sort of different methodologies there in terms of uh, the rate of change of how things are built, the construction methods that are being used. And um, 3D printing or any on-site construction methodology um, is particularly useful in remote conditions. Uh, you, and, and indeed, sometimes it, it uses locally sourced materials as well, which is fascinating. So you don't actually have to get the materials there. You can use things. I've heard about uh, buildings in the desert using sand on site to, to actually build them when I was researching for this uh, episode. And it's already been a solution um, that's been deployed in disaster relief and indeed converting slums in, in Brazil, for example, some of the favelas, the aim is to convert some of those fairly you know, rickety buildings into, uh, into sort of nice buildings using 3D printing. And even a red colonization of the moon and Mars is uh, potentially possible that NASA are looking into. So, and as regard the bricklayer, uh, Hadrian, he can lay a thousand bricks per hour and when I interviewed Andy Hubbard for y, uh, YPM magazine a, a little while back, he said that when he was an award-winning bricklayer himself, he would lay about 800 bricks a day. So that tells you the productivity gain that is potentially possible there with Hadrian. Uh, even it seems the best bricklayer can maybe lay about 800 bricks a day compared to 1,000 for Hadrian. And of course, he doesn't particularly take tea breaks. He can work 24 hours if it's sites permit and that kind of thing. But you take him to site and it's kind of this long boom and a conveyor belt. And, you know, he's got this injection sort of cement uh, spray, etc. It's quite fascinating if you want to look up. There's a link in the show notes if you wanted to look into that. But in the UK, a 3D printed house has been built in Highgate uh, in London. So uh, by all accounts, it went quite smoothly and it, it cost around £222 per square metre from what I can work out to build uh, what is quite a high, high spec house. And that's not particularly cheap. And so far, the other solutions that uh, have been rolled out are not that cost effective either just yet. So that does give rise to one of the problems, um, you know, holding scaling these technologies these up it needs to get cheaper more affordable but one word about the Highgate house apparently increased the value of the house by five times so maybe they've paid you know a premium let's say a small 50% premium say or thereabouts on uh, on the building using three uh, the 3d printing method in this Highgate house but they've got a five times increase in uh, the value of their property as a result so that's quite a significant return on investment and might uh, pique your interest
Another re- another sorry challenge is regulation, and as Matt uh, mentioned last week, so too is uh, is client pull or client demand. But that's now starting to change, it seems. Uh, so, for example, I know this is a long way off, but the United, the UAE, United Arab Emirates, rather, uh, government has said that it wants 25% of buildings to be 3D printed by 2030. So that's not that far away. It's 12 years to get 25% of its buildings print, uh, you know, using 3D uh, printing technology. Okay, so it is a faraway land, but it does spell out a trend of governments and public bodies setting targets and driving demand for alternative technologies in the building methods that are being adopted. The other issue is that we do need to tackle, sorry, that we do need to tackle collectively skill shortages with the estimated loss of 25% of technical skills from the construction industry over the next 10 years. So there's a couple of challenges and, and pulls against the development of some of this technology, cost, regulation, skills, etc. But of course, some of the you know, technology itself can help to achieve that, increase productivity from uh, Ahedrian, for example, uh, reduce cost of construction as a result of factory assembled units. So I think it's just some of the actual um, technological drives which are going to bring the actual cost of um, the technology down itself. It's probably going to uh, accelerate, let's say, over the next couple of years, I would imagine. So that was the first sort of general theme in this area. The second one is about alternative building materials. And you can have a lot of fun reading about some of the, the crazy things that are out there. But um, there are some new materials. Uh, nanotechnology and graphene um, was uh, something I've, I've been reading about quite a lot now. Um, we've got mycelium uh, or fungus bricks and uh, a new take on older materials such as using straw, uh, sorry, straw bale, bamboo, wood and rammed earth. Uh, and and even, as, even as Matt pointed out last week, self-healing concrete are all making progress. And so there is the incidence of uh, a wave bending technology, which allows materials to let sonic waves pass through it and then leaving them intact, which is particularly useful in areas of high seismic activity, for example. Now, you might not live in an earthquake zone, so maybe that's not an immediate concern to you, but it just shows really an example of some of the technological breakthroughs that are coming through now. Uh, with with these technologies. So I think probably, as Matt alluded to, the the self-healing concrete type of idea is probably going to take off a bit quicker than than perhaps, you know, uh, a straw bale house. Um, Who knows? (laughs) Remains to be be seen. But I think people are used to using concrete now. So variations on a theme is probably going to be more acceptable, let's say, than, you know, something quite quite novel. But I think certainly in the self-build arena, there's, uh, there's no reason why you can't have, you know, rammed earth to help insulation and build it into the landscape uh, using wood or timber frame for natural features, but in a more sustainable uh, way and that kind of thing. So there's some trends. Of course, we've got modular or interlocking materials as well. We've got structured, uh, sorry, structural insulated panels or SIPs and uh, insulated concrete framework becoming more widespread. Uh, they allow less time on site, a quicker construction, and often better energy efficient uh, solutions as well, better energy efficient results. Timber frame is becoming more mainstream, um, as indeed it is already in other countries. So the U- USA, for example, you'll find lots of timber frame homes. It's just not seen to be an accepted uh, volume uh, construction methodology that's used here, or uh, material rather that's used here in the UK. So I think that's going to start to change too. Perhaps a very small and more everyday application, perhaps, if some of this is a little bit 
uh, strategic and and uh, and visionary is um, I, I became aware of a, a contractor friend of mine uh, who recently bought an airless paint gun. And this allows him to paint an entire house in less than a day. <laughs> One hour per room, he, he mentions, including preparation. So it can potentially save an immense amount of time on a project. And he also tells me the finish is better than with a traditional paint roller as well. Of course, he had to buy the additional equipment and then learn how to use it. But um, his, you know, as he says, it's allowing him to increase his productivity at a staggering rate rather, as a result. So he can actually paint a house in less than a day or in where it would probably take him at least a week. So that's quite a significant productivity gain. So you might want to look into that. And finally, in my own case, uh, just a very small illustration, really just a, a tip of an iceberg illustration. I've been using durable paints in, in some of my rental properties. Um, the paint costs a bit more due to the added technology within it. But the main benefit is the walls are then washable um, because they're, they're hard wearing. So it becomes washable. So once they get marked and scuffed and that sort of thing, which you will find in your properties, I'm sure that you find it yourself and maybe on a, on a tenant turnaround, maybe after a couple of years, you might find yourself either doing a touch up or even a full repaint at times. Well, this washable paint allows you to avoid that, or at least avoid doing it so frequently because you can actually literally get in there, give it a good scrub down and it kind of looks, uh, it looks in pretty decent shape. So that what that means is, of course, it uh, extends the life of the paint, it reduces the frequency or the interval between repainting, and therefore it reduces my ongoing uh, property maintenance costs as a result over the long term. And there'll be no doubt countless more examples of these more everyday technological breakthroughs, either with us today, that probably I'm not aware of, or emerging in the very near future, I'm sure. So that was the second ma major grouping. The third one was around design and build. You know, so how are we literally setting about designing things and then building them? Well, build to rent and the growth of the uh, PRS or private rental sector has to be one of the biggest issues I want to call out here. So PwC or PricewaterhouseCoopers say that 60% of Londoners will be living in rented accommodation by 2025. Now, if you just look up or Google uh, the Wembley Park development, it uh, currently has permission to build 5,000 purpose-built rental properties and will eventually house up to 15,000 residents across 85 acres. Now, London is leading the way with, uh, with build-to-rent with around about 56,000 units to date. And other major cities such as Birmingham and Manchester are likely to follow. So um, I think there's round about there's over 100,000 you know purpose-built uh, build-to-rent properties so far, and that might not sound like so much, but it's a fairly new development. And you know if you imagine that we need between two and three hundred thousand new homes a year, a hundred thousand of those, okay, that's come over a period of time. I accept um, it's starting to become an important contribution. Uh, we need to change the way we think about housing, just supply housing of all tenures. So whether it's you know homes, homeowners, um, social housing, or indeed the private rental sector, uh, we need more of every every type. So we shouldn't just get hung up on building houses for people to buy. There's other ways in which people want to uh, to live and, and need to live. So I'm going to see that as a big emerging trend. And by the way, small builders can get involved in that as well and have build to rent schemes as well as well as um, build to sell development types of projects. And then there's this trend around self-build and custom build. And if you remember, Matt mentioned uh, something about policy changes around custom build last week, which I wasn't kind of fully aware of at the time. Well, after the show, I did a bit of digging and I, I located the Self-Build and uh, Custom House Building Act from 2015, um, subsequently amended by the Housing and Planning Act 2016. 
But uh, this sets out a few points, including the requirement for local authorities to measure the local demand for self-build and custom-build, which it also defines. So if you want to see what the differences are, it's in there. But in all honesty, apart from the requirement to maintain a register and take into consideration, sorry, consideration uh, self-build and custom-build requirements locally, uh, in with their local planning policy, I did not see a definite requirement or target that needs to be met. So unlike in Germany, where I mentioned, or uh, actually I didn't mention, um, I think Malcolm from Greenheart mentioned, you know, 10% of new uh, development land set aside around towns has to be made available for self-build. We don't have anything like that as far as I can see, not just yet. So in other words, it'd be down to local planners to make the decision uh, based on the local demand and of course, you know, what how they actually want to meet that demand. So I think it's a step in the right direction, but it's not uh, that uh, that transparent. And that's, that's another issue I think that's come out is that we're not necessarily leading the way in the UK. I think other people are taking the lead. Um, that paint gun that I mentioned earlier, actually technology comes from, the, the main technology comes from the USA actually, but also Germany. Uh, we've got people like um, Germany and Holland leading the way with some of these new construction methodologies. Uh, some of the materials that are coming out of the Nordics, you know, is another leader. So we're not, we're following rather than leading in some to some extent. So I think there's a way to go. But with my guests over the last couple of weeks, I, I, I didn't really get to discuss um, some of the following topics, which, which mainly centre on changes in how we need to design and use properties. Um, so there's definitely some emerging trends with co-living, assisted living and community living, which are all variations on the theme of supported social housing. So don't think of social housing as like a council house. Think of social housing as a group of people living together in a community. That's what I'm getting at here. So these, you know, these are all variations. So think of old people's homes, but not not an old people's home. You know, houses centered around a community, which has perhaps got a medical or nursing services attached to them, uh, for example, um, or a cooperative community that takes it in turns to cook for one another. I've seen those sorts of things popping, popping up, or they've perhaps got their own vegetable plots where they're growing. So yeah, perhaps sounds a bit hippie, but you know, it's just, I think there's just a growing need for people to get closer together instead of being further apart. And this is kind of playing into that to some extent. Well, you could look at the uh, some of the younger millennials li living in studios in in a in large, super large apartment complex. I think the Collective in London is one such example. And then they share large communal spaces and facilities. So there's cafes and the cinemas and there's restaurants and there's they have party nights and this sort of thing. So it, it's a, it's kind of a nice bridge from university, perhaps into uh, into this kind of living arrangement, rather than getting a, a, a dreary studio apartment and living and just being on your own all the time. So this sort of co-living social community um, is, you know, I think is a, also a trend. And um, it's then not so much of a stretch to consider the blurring of uh, of use of, in some of the properties to convert them perhaps into multifunction usage, where work. Uh, and rest meets play, or work meets rest meets play. And if you just look at WeWork and their move into We Live as an example of this, you can see that. Um, the rise of the digital nomad is also giving rise to a whole new you know, type of property demand. They, they want a property in Bali that has super fast broadband, printing facilities, a comfortable bed, and a large kitchen dining entertainment space where they can intermingle with their peers and brainstorm, brainstorm startup ideas all before switching to Sydney or New York for a few months 
yes, these places exist now. And I think it's going to be a, another emerging trend. There, there is indeed, or, or needs to be, I think, um, something of a rethink in how we use space in our home. For example, um, we have micro homes cropping up in high density urban areas, such as London, of course. And you know, with a lack of space, we need to kind of rethink how we, we, we use or get the most use out of a building space. Now, I'm not suggesting that we build shoeboxes or, you know, I think in Japan, literally had roll in, roll out beds in, in hotels, that kind of thing. I'm not necessarily suggesting we go that far, but we don't necessarily need as much space as we think we do. And with clever design as well, we can actually get more into less space. But equally, uh, multi-generational homes um, we're seeing more demand for that, you know, where three generations of the same family can cohabit. But of course, they've all got very different needs. You know, a young child or baby has got different needs to an elderly grandparent. So the the, the type of uh, construction and design of the, and layout of these properties needs to allow for uh, easy access, mobility and that kind of thing. Which brings me on to also catering for the elderly specifically. Um, and and demand, there's, there's a high demand, really high demand for bungalows. You know, it's not it's not a kind of a joke. It's almost an aspirational thing that perhaps somebody's got a little bit older and, you know, less mobile. Perhaps they want to move to a bungalow where everything's on one level and it's going to be easier for them. Of course, they could move to an apartment as long as there's a lift. They can have mobility. Uh, they could also move to a bungalow and have the privacy of their own home. But you know, there's a lot of talk at the moment about, you know, perhaps the uh, great generation living in, in, a, in, a, in a large house, a large property, which is not well adapted to their use. Um, and they're they're knocking around in it. There's perhaps now one you know one person or two people living in in a three or four bedroom large property, which of course is making it harder for other people to take that property up. So I can see there's certainly demand for it. Uh, it's whether it will be met. But I, I do see this as a, an emerging trend. How we use uh, property and space is going to change over the future. And a final point in this subsection is the emergence of the sharing economy. Of course, it's a uh, is bringing about changes in how we use properties and also their economic models as well. We just need to look at Airbnb and what it's done uh, for short-term rentals. And uh, previously I mentioned WeWork, but WeWork has hot desk office space with, um, you know, that people can just rent on a, on a short-term basis in the commercial sector. So you've got residential and commercial, you know, sharing, you know, results there. And they're just two examples of uh, what, what currently exists and there's emerging new business models. And other technological developments are making the emergence of new business models increasingly more viable and within reach of even the smallest property investor now. Just imagine you can open up your smartphone, you can download an app and you can upload a short-term rental listing in minutes. And who would have thought that five to ten years ago? So the final you know, major area that I kind of detected um, over the course of the discussions and my research was around energy efficiency. Of course, the first thing to say about energy is we don't have enough of it. We certainly don't have enough of the carbon variety, at least. And by some estimations, we'll run out of carbon fuels by 2050. And perhaps more worryingly, if we delay the point in time where we decide to switch to non-carbon fuels, it might then be too late. <laughs> so there's a tipping point that's probably well before 2050. I think it's got the 30 in it, uh, where we definitely need to be making significant strides to move away from carbon and into other more sustainable um, energy usage. But I might not be around come 2050. 
Um, I don't know, you never know, I might still be hanging on, but probably not. Um, but I have children who will be. And so we have a responsibility to the next generations to do something before it's you know too late and they essentially inherit our problem. Uh, and this has been a big talking point, of course, especially with the uh, US position on global energy and climate change, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, I think most of the world is still signed up to it. It just remains to be seen whether we're actually doing enough quick enough. But uh, anyway, that's the big agenda. Um, as far as more practically is, is concerned, there is, again, this distinction between new build and retrofit. Um, there's, you know, there's a lot of difference between installing energy efficient systems in new developments compared to the existing housing stock. But ease does not uh, absolve our responsibility. And indeed, smart home technology enabled by the Internet of Things will help with the rollout of energy efficient homes for sure. But I don't want to spoil the surprise for what we're going to cover over the next couple of weeks, so I'll just leave that thought there for now. But even if we don't take ownership of the planet's precious energy resources personally, the government kindly is helping us to take notice. So, for example, um, there's laws affecting landlords around energy efficiency. And I hope you know, <laughs> but did you know that from the 1st of April this year, 2018, all new lets and renewals, uh, letting renewals in the private rented sector will need to have an energy efficiency or EPC uh, rating of E or better. And, and this is going to affect all private rental properties and tenancies from um, April 20. So you won't even be allowed to rent out the property at all um, if, uh, if, you know, regarding whether it's a new let or a renewal of a tenancy, if you, if you let it go onto periodic, in other words, um, by 2020, you're, you're scuppered if you've got an energy rating below E. So if you do try and rent an F4G rated property out, uh, you can actually be fined £4,000 for doing so as well. So there's quite a few big incentives or sticks there to look at upgrading the heating system, wouldn't you say? There's a link to the show notes about where that's all come from, but you better take notice. And um, the UK Green Building Council report suggests the average cost of bringing a property up to band E level, so from F or G, for example, would be around £1,400, £1,400, with around 70% of landlords facing a bill of around £1,000. So maybe that's not such a large sum, but if you're looking at rent, you know, rental profits of around about £100 a month, £200 a month, that sort of thing, it's quite a significant loss of profits for a while. So best to have a look into that and see what's available. But if the minimum energy ratings that prevent us from letting properties or even serving a, a Section 21 notice, along with the fines for landlords, are, are not a stick big enough to get you to, uh, to move, the Domestic Renewable Heat Incentive, or RHI, might be a more pleasant carrot instead. The RHI is a, is a grant that's available to property owners to install sustainable energy systems instead of the old carbon fuel-based systems of gas and grid-based electricity uh, that we've become accustomed to. So worth checking that out. Again, there's a link in the show notes if you want to look into that. But as came out of my discussion with, uh, with Richard and Malcolm from Greenheart, sustainable building can marry the two worlds of the green ecological agenda to the property investor's commercial agenda. And there is often a business case, a very clear business case that supports the drive as well as pure environmental considerations. So if you just look at the average cost of £1,000 I just mentioned for upgrading technology and getting a higher energy efficient uh, property, rental property, which you're going to be required to do anyway, um, there will be a payoff. Uh, okay, the tenant might be paying the bills, so they'll get the payoff in terms of the bill saving. But equally, A, you'll be able to rent it out 
So uh, that's, you know, you won't lose a rental income. And two, if you ever come to sell it, it's going to have a higher energy rating and therefore you'll be able to sell it at a premium. Or to flip the coins around, if you can't uh, rent it out or you can't sell it, you're going to lose a lot of money. So maybe spend a little to avoid losing a lot is the key takeaway from that. So there we go. There were the four main areas. I kind of wanted to summarize and, and draw out some of the you know com common threads and emerging trends. But uh, let's look at some of the conclusions uh, before we wrap up today. There, there's been some breakthroughs that are, are already with us, and there's others that will we're not not too far away off yet. Um, okay, there's I don't quite see us colonizing Mars with 3D printed homes anytime soon. But I can see the reality of factory-built homes, or at least parts for homes, uh, emerging to meet the housing supply shortage that we currently have to be able to accelerate the, the building um, rate that we've been experiencing. And with some of the new materials, you know, really do seem to be, some of them seem to be really space age as well. But science, uh, as science progresses, so too does the discovery of new applications or improvements to some older materials as well. So if not hempcrete, <laughs> which, you know, Malcolm, you know, and Richard suggested was quite a difficult material to work with, uh, then perhaps the self-healing concrete that Matt referred to could be hit hitting specifiers ra radars pretty soon, I would suggest. People are more familiar with using concrete, so if we just improve the technology of concrete, then that's going to be a lot easier to use rather than retraining people in how to use a, what, what seems to be quite a, a complicated or difficult um, material to use in practice. And I've absolutely no doubt whatsoever that build to rent will see a massive push over the coming years. Developments will be required for all 10 years, as I mentioned, including rentals. So the development of homes where the original buyer has a vested interest in the long term operating cost of that building will surely produce a drive towards higher quality and greater sustainability. And of course, we can take an interest in that, too. We can also have build to rent properties that we're designing ourselves. Uh, and we'll be picking up the tab to some extent of some of these ongoing operating costs or maintenance costs, if not operating costs. Of course, the energy agenda cannot be understated. It's one of the most significant problems that this generation will have to tackle, in my opinion. Expect some carrots and a lot more sticks, perhaps, as incentives do tend to work. However, also expect to see enhancements in technology that will enable the the more widespread adoption of more energy efficient homes to meet the increased demand that these incentives will drive. Personally speaking, I see some overlap in some of these technologies, policies and trends if I just take a step back. We need more homes and so factory built housing or on-site 3D printing just seems to make sense to help with that. We're losing skills in the construction industry so technological advancements can help to plug the gap and also allow a reallocation of skills and jobs, whilst at the same time offering the potential to increase productivity. Makes sense. Collectively, we also need to fix the increasing energy crisis or uh, energy consumption crisis that's brewing. So the emergence of sustainable energy alternatives designed in, say, a passive house way, Built using a timber frame with panel-based units just, just seems to glue together quite nicely from my point of view. So I see opportunities for us as investors and developers, but also some threats as well. And we cannot continue to bury our head in the sand and just wait until we have no choice but to comply, you know, dragged kicking and screaming to the table. 
we might be extinct by then if we choose to do that. So joining the dots in all this construction technological developments is going to be interesting, to say the least. So I suggest you keep a close eye on developments over the coming months and years. And one such resource that you might be interested in uh, comes from James, I think it's Dursley, might be Dearsley. So I might, sorry, James, if I've got your name wrong. Uh, I'm, 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 by the way, notorious for getting people's names wrong. So don't take it personally. <laughs> so James Dearsley or James Dursley, uh, who's uh, well known in prop tech circles, he produces a Sunday review, which you can subscribe to, uh, to receive uh, notifications by email. It's, a, it's kind of a blog post. In fact, James uh, placed a bit of a shout out to in his last episode uh, from last Sunday um, to to our podcast, the one that uh, we had Matt on the show, and um, he dropped me a note to say that you know if uh, if if it's relevant, he'll continue to do so. So thanks, James, for doing that, shouting us out, and I'm returning the favour. I'm shouting out your resource too. So if you just want to go there, just subscribe at his website, which is James Dursley or Dursley JamesDursley.co.uk, and you can stay abreast of developments in the prop tech sector from somebody who's much more knowledgeable and closer to it than I am. Okay, that's almost all from me this week. But just before I leave, just a a brief moment. Um, You last minute people who can get to King's Cross on the uh, first evening this episode is released. So that'll be Wednesday, the 21st of February. I'm hosting a a working social where we'll aim to crowd solve some of the biggest property investment challenges over dinner and drinks. So I'm not talking about prop tech specifically. I'm talking about more strategic and commercial challenges that you're facing in your property journey. So if you're in town or you can get to town tonight, um, check out um, check out the Property Voice Meetup page. There's a link in the show notes. Uh, or I've got an event list. Uh, sorry, event bright listing, uh, which uh, which lists that out. But you can just drop me an email, podcast at propertyvoice.net, and I'll tell you all about it. Got a couple of places left. Um, should be a good evening. We're having dinner, drinks, and crowd solving each other's problems. So, and if nothing else, it's a great opportunity to, to rub shoulders with some of the people in my community. But I don't have very large events. I have smaller events because I prefer to actually get around and talk to people. So uh, the spaces are limited and all that stuff. But as anyway, just to close, as usual, the show notes can be found over at the website, thepropertyvoice.net. Or if you want to talk about anything from today's show, receive an intro into any one of my guests or talk about property investing more generally, you can invoice. Invoice me? No. I'll tell you what, why do you email, email me instead? I'm not going to pay your invoice. Uh, podcast at thepropertyvoice.net. And I'd be very happy to hear from you, especially if it's not got an invoice attached. But for now, all I want to say is thank you very much for listening once again this week. And until next time on the Property Voice podcast, it's ciao, ciao. Thank you for listening today. Now head over to thepropertyvoice.net for more inspirational content and get updates through our mailing list. Join us next time on the Property Voice podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate us on iTunes.